Well, good morning. Today we're going to begin a series out of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel is one of the most fascinating characters in all the Bible. He comes to the stage as a 15-year-old boy in the worst of times. And you know what? As you read through the life of Daniel, Daniel continues uh, in leadership in a foreign nation at the highest levels from the age of 15 all the way into his 80s. How in the world does somebody do that? We're going to look at that today. So in Daniel chapter 1, I begin with this, this, this first point, and that is troubled. It was the worst of times. It begins like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. I mean, this is Daniel at 15, is enduring a very frightening event in his nation's history. His country was defeated in a war between Nebuchadnezzar and, and the king Jehoiakim. Now, you can see immediately the theology of Daniel because Daniel, in the first few sentence of the, sentences of this narrative, as a young man, he, be, he begins to declare what he believes to be happening. And he believes two things to be happening. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar comes into his, his town, defeats the king, goes into the temple, takes some of the articles out of the temple. Now remember, these articles are beautifully intricate car carves, carvings overlaid with gold. These are sacred items that represent the worship of the people of Israel to their God. They are handled carefully. And now all of a sudden, this foreign king takes them and in a, in a power move, he declares by invading the temple and taking things out of there that your God has no power over me. Your God does not matter to me. I hereby humiliate your God by taking these sacred items and I'm gonna bring them into the treasury of my God. Now, these articles are more than furniture. They represented the worship of God, the presence of Almighty God among his people. They identified the people of Israel as a special people to God. How in the world can this happen? Surely that's what Daniel was thinking. And yet, at the same time, he probably understood. You know, the reason for the dark judgment that fell on Israel was because of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. They had left the special relationship with God. They now worshiped idols. They even sacrificed their children to idols. They ignored God and boldly rejected the careful obedience that defined their relationship with God. 
And it wasn't as if they were blindsided by this judgment. I mean, from the very beginning of their history, when Moses was guiding the setting up of the temple and the, the artifacts and the, and the pieces of furniture in the, in the tabernacle, um, God made it very clear, I, I love you, you're a special people, and I want you to experience me through the worship that you are going to be involved in. But they rejected God. You know, the interesting thing was that they were defeated and ultimately scattered as a people. And all of these things have been foretold. You do this, you'll get that. You follow me, you obey me, and you honor the relationship that we have. And I can be here. I can be with you. You abandon me? You ignore me? I can't stay. Isaiah chapter 1 describes what God is feeling. In Isaiah chapter 1, the great prophet is telling the people I, that God, God is actually broken hearted. And he says, you don't really honor me or worship me. I, am, I hate your assemblies. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. And then when you get to verse 18, this is such a beautiful passage. He says, as one more effort to win his people back, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Time after time, after time, God calls out to his people whom he loves and he pleads with them. Please don't ignore this relationship. Finally, God had to fulfill what he had promised. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar invaded the city, defeated the king, and took the articles from the temple. This is one of three times when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Daniel's world fell apart. I mean, the, to watch his city and his people finally receive the promised judgment, to see the horror and the struggle of his people as they were defeated. Now, you know, when you and I are under stress, it's under that pressure, it's in that trouble that the real you gets revealed. You can plaster a good smile on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? I do. You know, I'm not always great. Did you know that? 
I decided a long time ago if I was going to be a, a pastor, I, I can't do this from a position of I get it right, I'm pretty perfect, and I'm telling you all what to do, because that just is not reality. The only way I can stand here and do what I do is to know that I am one beggar telling other beggars where to find some bread. I am one man who has received the mercy and the gracious response of a very good God. And I can promise you, he'll help you too. Two things Daniel notices is this. First of all, um, it is this uh, mystery of the, you know, the, the, the activities of people and the circumstances of life. Sometimes it seem out of control. And the sovereign presence of an almighty God who regardless of what you're experiencing always remains in control. And so he says that. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the guy doing it. Secondly, Daniel clarifies, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And he says, God is also here. God is at work. The sovereignty of God is a complicated mystery. And Daniel he reminds everyone, even in this chaos, that God is present, he is aware, and he's even working in trouble. You know, James chapter 1 is a New Testament passage that helps people get through trouble. I'd love to be able to stand here and say that it is possible for you to avoid trouble in your life, but I can't, because that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, what the Bible does teach is trouble's coming, Suffering is coming. Death is on its way. But there is a God who is going to be with you. And in your trouble, he will be active and good and powerful and sovereign. And nothing really goes beyond his control. And because he's on our side and because he's working all things together for our good, we can be okay in trouble. James chapter 1, James, the half-brother of Jesus, although he doesn't mention that here, this is what he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice how his attitude is, is not, God, I am following you, you should do what I think you should do to make my life happy, prosperous, and good. That's not his attitude. James says, my, my demeanor as I approach God in trouble is, God, I am a bondservant. I can demand nothing, I deserve nothing. He goes on, and he writes to the 12 tribes uh, that are scattered abroad. Verse two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Are you kidding me? Is that even possible? It, apparently it is. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And patience, and let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. You know what? There's a lot of Christians who are unstable in all of their ways because they forget that God is God and they're not. And they demand that God follow their plan to make them happy and do things the way you want him to do. Are you kidding me? That's what I want. But if you want to be solid and stable, you got to always live with a level of surrender and trust in the goodness of God, a submission to his sovereign work. When things go bad, when you're in pain, when you are uncertain of your future, according to James, you can't actually live with joy in pain. Um, how? By remembering that God at all times is in control and he is good. And it's easy to trust the God who is right beside you and promises to watch out for you. He is not unconcerned. God is not cruel. God is involved in your life. He is actually doing a deeper work in you because he is far more concerned about our character than our circumstances. And with the trouble, he shapes our character for the long term. Nothing, not even pain and suffering and disappointment can defeat his good plan for our lives. Daniel believes this because he sees the work of Nebuchadnezzar that is evil and he sees the presence of God and knows that it was only because God allowed Nebuchadnezzar that this thing happened. Um, none of us like trouble, but who are we gonna go to for help? God's the only one. I think Daniel was stable for all of those years in uncertain in chaotic times because he absolutely trusted in God. He saw the king, but he focused on the God who was in control. Second, second thing that happens in this passage is brainwashed. Daniel and his buddies are brainwashed. Now can you imagine what it was like for Daniel to witness the fall of his own country, the killing that took place, can you imagine that the soldiers came knocking at the door of his house because he was part of the royal class and he felt the description of the men that the Babylonian king had told his servants to find. He was 15 and he's taken and arrested. He's separated from his family, his homeland, his people. He didn't know what they were gonna do with him. Fear had to be one of the emotions within him as he made the 1,600-mile journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. You know what? Springfield, Missouri to Los Angeles, California is about 1,600 miles. It's a long way away. But we get to drive cars nowadays. You know what I'm saying? I remember when I took my son to California when he moved out there. It, he, I, I said, I'll, I'll drive with you. We got in his old... CRV loaded up with everything that he owned, which wasn't very much, but it did include a large television. And I said, listen, 
hey, Robert, we are not driving straight. I'm not doing a 36, 48-hour straight drive from Springfield to California. I've, I've done that in my day. I'm done with that. Here's what we're going to do. I don't care what you say. If I'm going with you, we're going to break this up into three days. We're going to drive eight hours. Then we're going we're gonna to stop. We're going to get a, a motel, and we're, we're going to have dinner, and we're going to go see a movie. And then we're going to go to bed. Then we'll wake up in the next morning. We'll do eight hours again the next day. And then we're going to get to a town. We mapped it out. We're going to get a, a motel, have a nice dinner, and we're going to go see another movie. So we split it up into three days. It was great. It, actually, it's one of my most cherished experiences with my son. We listened to podcasts hours and hours on end. He turned me on to a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist History podcast loved it. We had a great time. We discussed it. It, it was the, one of the most special times. But I'm telling you what, when I left him in Los Angeles and came back to Springfield, I felt the distance. So did he. Daniel had no idea what was going to happen to him. When he got to Babylon, he was far away from everything and everyone he knew. No support system, no assurance of tomorrow. It was a scary moment. And this is the plan that unfolded. He wasn't sold into slavery. He wasn't put in prison. He actually was absorbed into the brainwashing regimen of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 3, then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, he had, he, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom, in whom um, they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from, um, uh, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He g gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, so Daniel and his three friends apparently were good-looking and very smart and very capable, and that's why they were selected. And one of the first things that they did was they changed their name. You see what they were doing? They were absorbing them into the culture and the value system of Babylon. And so Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, his parents were on, on point when they named him. So every time anybody called Daniel, the whole room was reminded, God is my judge. We don't love to always be reminded of that, but Daniel couldn't avoid it. That was his name. He was named with the name of God in his name and the, the reminder that God is his judge. They took Daniel and they said, nope, we're not giving you that name anymore. You will be Belteshazzar. Bel was the pagan god and that name says, may, may Bel protect the king. So this is now your mission. They begin to educate Daniel in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. He was from the nobility. He was carefully vetted. Make no mistake, the king 
was not paying his tuition out of the kindness of his heart. He was working to turn these promising young men into easily managed yes men of the Babylonian noble class. The king was going to own them, lock, stock, and barrel, even to the changing of their name. You know, language and literature are powerful tools. They have shaped our world throughout the generations. Language is a very powerful tool to make people to conform to standards and philosophies of the world. Babylon, throughout the Bible, stands for the organization and the power of a secular, godless world system. And Babylon was living up to its name. Do you know that you and I are constantly being managed by the world system around us? Did you know that? And you know how we're being managed right now very powerfully? It's through correct language that's being imposed upon us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we be rude and insensitive and unkind. No, no, no. But make no mistake, as it was in the day of Babylon, this isn't a new thing, by the way, so don't freak out too much. God's handled it before he can handle it today. We are being managed through language and literature. For instance, now people have partners. We don't call them husbands and wives. We have all iterations of what the family should be. Unwanted pregnancies are, are called that instead of unborn human beings. Inappropriate is a word that we like to use rather than wrong or sinful. Assisted dying is, is what we, we like to talk about rather than killing people. Gender identity, which honestly in my lifetime, it seems like that's been a recently invented term. Did you talk about this 30 years ago? Now we have gender identity as opposed to gender. We're being managed. By working to change the language, our culture is systematically working to conform us to its new and improve, so they say, value system that is basically godless and an anything-goes system. It's happening to you. Notice how your vocabulary is changing. Notice how things that several years ago shocked you now are ordinary. Do you notice it? Or am I the only one? It's happening. The literature of our day doesn't just include books that are used in our highly politicized educational system. Additionally, everything out there on electronic and print media is managing us. Not to mention the internet, entertainment, social media, professional associations, medical terminology and practice, and more to get your attention and make you conform. These are powerful tools to make people conform. How many people um, are, are being conformed every day? And if you don't conform to this new cultural norm, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be canceled. They're canceling in education. They're canceling in business. They're canceling in entertainment. They're canceling at work and in our community. It's the systematic brainwashing Enforcing us to walk, lock, step with the culture.
That's what was happening to Daniel. Third, in order for us to survive, we have to do what Daniel did. We have to learn how to say no and draw a boundary. Now, I have a two-year-old, most adorable and beautiful. She's not two yet. She will be two in August. Little baby granddaughter. And her favorite movie, movies are Moana and Bruno. That's not the name of the movie. Encanto, something like that. And her song that she likes to sing is, we don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. And guess what? This precious little angel of mine has found her no. That's actually a developmental milestone. You know what? Sometimes you and I need to find our no. Daniel did. And he drew a boundary. Now, one of the most effective brainwashing and assimilation tools was not torture, but luxury. You know, all of these guys in this program, they sat down at this most amazing table, courtesy of the king himself. The dishes on that table were served in china and fine linen, and they were the delicacies of the kingdom. Daniel had never seen such a spread. No one had ever tasted food this good. And you know what? Here was the package. Listen. You follow us and do what we say, and we will feed you well. We will give you a good job. We will pay you a high salary, and your life will be fine. Just conform. In verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart. You know, it's, it's almost like this. Daniel felt himself slipping away. He was no longer Daniel. I, I, I kind of feel like Daniel was maybe thinking, what's going to happen to the testimony of God? Will there be anybody who has a relationship with this wonderful God I have discovered? Will anybody be proclaiming this God, his presence and his power and or will that go away? And, and the world will be in chaos. And Daniel decides, no, you can't have me, king. Lock, stock, and barrel, I will not give you my life. So what he does, he draws a boundary. He says, just like Bruno, we talk about Bruno, no. Come on, say it with me, no. Y'all aren't very good two-year-olds. Here we go, no. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested, notice his tone, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs. Now, notice once again, we juxtapose what, what is happening in the real world circumstances, but also there is the working of God in a supernatural way because God is always in control. And turns out, God brought Daniel in favor and goodwill with the, with the boss. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, 
I fear, my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and drink. Why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Well, that's a pretty good motivation, I'm going to have to say. I mean, actually, Daniel knew making this request, he was putting his life on the line. Remember, he was a foreign prisoner of war, and now he's making a request. He's telling the, 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 the boss, I don't want to eat from the king's table, and and now the prince of the eunuch sympathizes with him and says, well, but you know what? What you're asking is for me to put my head on the block too. And so then Daniel, he said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. You know what? They all went vegan. Isn't that awesome, right? Anybody here want to go vegan? Well, help yourself. Um, And then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this manner and tested them 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than any all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away the portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel declares with his no, I'm still here, God. I still seek you. I want to honor you even at the risk of my life. And God says, Daniel, I got gotcha. you. He gives him knowledge, skill, wisdom, and he gives him understanding of visions and dreams. It's setting up for the rest of the whole book. It's interesting to see how a 15-year-old um, our 15-year-olds our are so easily captured by the culture. If you're here today and you're a 15-year-old young man or young woman, maybe 13, 14, 15, 16, maybe 20, they're out to get you. You think you're doing what you want, you're gonna be free? Mm -mm. You will be enslaved. Any topic, follow the culture, you'll be enslaved. Daniel says, this is hard, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to resist. You know, one of the most amazing things is that when you walk into Babylon, just the experience of walking down the street into the, to the palace area was mesmerizing. Look at this picture. This is actually in the museum in Berlin. This beautiful lapis lazuli. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. Not only the gate, but even the entrance to the gate and, and the pavers uh, on, on the ground. I mean, have you ever been somewhere that you just like your, your mouth drops, your eyes open, and you're like, I can't believe anything is so beautiful as this. And you know what this was? This was a declaration that this place, this secular paganism, this culture, their success and opulence is off the charge. God really did look discredited. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to be tempted to think, I'm not sure if I can follow God. I read about a first-year college student who said this. 
It's not the temptation of sex and drink that I found the hardest. It is being surrounded by people who live as if Jesus wasn't there, and yet they look incredibly successful, enjoying life more than I am. If secular and godless culture look incredibly strong and free, and Christianity looks weak or false, what are we to do? And Daniel says, I do not care what they're trying to convince me of. I know God is in control. Well, Daniel said no. He chose not to eat. He was like the one holdout in the destruction of the worship of God, along with these three other Hebrew children, and who knows how many others, but these are the ones highlighted in this text, who say, no, no, we're going to follow God no matter what. We're going to trust him. We're going to seek him. We're going to choose to glorify him. You know, I wonder if there are boundaries in your life that you need to set. I mean, for him, what he ate was a daily reminder that they hadn't got him yet. You know? He was still Daniel. He was still free. He established something very real. I have a few suggestions. What boundaries could you establish to remind yourself who you are and that you belong to God and that you live for his glory. I'm going to suggest three things. Three most important things in our lives. Number one, time, money, and relationships. I mean, those are so powerful. Time. In the New Testament, you know what it says? Here's a boundary you could set. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, I'm too busy to go to church. Are you really? Set a boundary. Oh, but it's going to hurt me. Well, go ahead. I think you should be hurt a little bit. Well, go ahead. Be absorbed by the culture. Get lost in a godless system. Or be a warrior. And say, oh, no, no, no. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When we want to, when we don't want to, we're going to take our time and we're going to spend it in the house of God because I need to remind myself who I belong to. Money. Money is a powerful substitute God. Seriously, isn't it the most powerful thing that we get? So what does the New Testament tell us? You know what? You need to be generous with your money. You need to tithe. You give 10%. What you declare is money. You, you, I need you, but I don't worship you. How do you defeat greed in your life? You give money away, and you say to money, ah, bam, you're not in charge of me. You know, I remember when my kids were little, they would say to people that we got to watch them, they would say, you're not in charge of me. And then I'd come back in and I would say, yes, they are. They're your babysitters. You know what you need to say to money? You're not in charge of me. I give it. Lastly, relationships. 
We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And so sometimes it's real important for us to exercise that discipline to love. Love is not a feeling. To quote Dan in real life, love is an ability. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but the Bible says that love is an action, a decision that we make. You know who you need to love just to prove that you are not controlled by the culture? Love your enemy. Yeah. Say good things about them, pray for them, serve them, refuse to hate them. Daniel said, no. I belong to God. I will not be absorbed into this culture that will ultimately just destroy me, chew me up and spit me out. Daniel lasted in a position of authority um, for 70 years, 60, 70 years. He was in his 80s. He outlived Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. He out-influenced Nebuchadnezzar because he, he went from one regime to the next, to the next, to the next. How do you thrive in chaos? You remember who's really in control. And you serve him. And you trust him. And you surrender to him. You know, there's a, a man that maybe you've heard of before. His name is Tim Tebow. Anybody heard of Tim Tebow? Yeah, appreciate the six of you who did. The rest of you need to get more studied because he's an awesome guy. Tim Tebow is actually a missionary kid. I kind of feel close to missionary kids. He actually was born in the Philippines. Yeah. Tim Tebow is known for, known for being an athlete. Um, his Night to Shine program for special needs adults to give them a prom night where they are celebrated has actually reshaped the world and the way people see special needs people. And we get to be one of the hosts of that night to shine. One thing that he was well known for was his, his I mean, people were asking him all kinds of personal questions when he was in the spotlight. And one of them was about his relationships. Even his sexuality was in question. And people were so irritated when Tim Tebow let it be known that he, he actually believed in the biblical model of purity, that he, he, he really was going to wait until he got married. And they ridiculed him, made up stories about him. But, but he believed that God's design was the best. That walking into a marriage with a commitment to God and his future spouse and enjoying the beauty of that relationship was the best way to live. You know what, I don't know where you are. At any moment, you can decide to forsake the world's concept of sexuality and family and to return to God and say, God, from now on here, I'm, I'm with Tim. Do you know he got married? Does anybody know that? He did okay. He married Miss Universe. He wrote a book called Mission Possible. And this is what he had to say. When you live Mission Possible, you live a life 
that counts because of what God has done and is doing through you. Now, this scriptural charge doesn't mean that you have to become a missionary or plant yourself on the other side of the world, nor does it mean that you have to sing worship songs during every waking hour, though if you feel a tug in your heart to do that, go for it. But it does mean that your big picture purpose is to glorify God wherever you are after and only after you latch on to that God-given big picture response, there's a way to identify what your personal purpose might be. Within that greater purpose of glorifying God, you find your purpose in what you do every day. Simply put, purpose is about being mission-driven in your ordinary life. Living a mission-possible life means uh, executing the good works that God has already prepared for you to do. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote, we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. You can live a mission possible life because of what Jesus did for you on the cross more than 2,000 years ago. This kind of life is possible only because of the sacrifice he made and the power given to him to trample over death. When you live mission possible, you live a life that counts because of what God has done and is doing through you. We can be absorbed into the culture and our lives will just fade away into nothing. Or we can surrender to the God who created us. And through Jesus, receive his forgiveness, the presence of his Holy Spirit, and the purpose for which we were created. So many people living empty, meaningless lives. And Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I'll forgive you and save you. And I'll show you what to do in your ordinary life that will make all the difference in the world. And you, you will go to bed every night and wake up and, and say, I may not get it all right, but you know what? I still sense that God is with me and I'm serving him and I'm gonna continue to do that. I wanna ask you if you would to bow your heads. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, do you know that God waits for you to come? If you're hearing this right now, and the Holy Spirit of God is quickening your spirit and speaking to you and saying, this is what you need. You could accept Jesus today. Romans says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said, let me tell you what's going on. God so loved the world. That means you too. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You don't have to figure it all out. You just need to surrender. You just need to beg. You just need to say, God, forgive me. Jesus, come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior. I will follow you and obey you. I want my life to matter. Maybe you're here today and you need to draw some boundaries just to remind yourself and the people around you that you've not been absorbed into the culture of meaningless life. Would you stand, please?